The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They called me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our guest producer, Max Freight Train Williams. Most importantly, you are you. You are here. And that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. This is quite a fascinating conversation that we're bringing to you today, fellow conspiracy realist. Uh, it contains some. Um, it contains some frank and graphic discussion of violence and possibly ongoing conspiracy. We're not diving into this alone. We are joined with a returning guest, the award-winning host and producer, creator of Sleepwalkers, creator of Forgotten Women of Juarez, and a personal friend of the show, Oz Wolosian. Oz, welcome back, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's always such a pleasure, Ben and Noel and Matt. Thank you. Oh, yeah. We, um, you know, this... This newest project of yours, the it <laughs> Silence the Radio Murders speaks to something that I think will fascinate all of our fellow listeners because it's a story that maybe people in the West were aware of in the broad strokes, but this is one of the only in-depth level, like in-depth, sophisticated reporting. Uh, pieces that I have personally encountered on this. And maybe that's where we start. Um, let's see. You know, Matt made a great point off here. Maybe we start with the lay of the land of Haiti, because for a country that is so close to the U.S., uh, it's astonishing how little a lot of people know about it. Absolutely. I mean, Haiti is, um, you know, a couple of hundred miles uh, off the coast of Florida. It's half of an island that 
was formerly known as Hispaniola. The other half is the Dominican Republic. And it has both one of the most romantic and inspiring histories of any country in the world, and also the most tragic. Um, it was a French slave colony. Uh, and in 1804, there was a slave rebellion led by a man called Toussaint Louverture, which overthrew Napoleon's armies. It was the first and only fully successful slave rebellion that gave birth to a nation. And so Haiti has this enormous um, sense of pride and uh, dignity and a celebration of that revolutionary spirit. At the same time, the country has never really been allowed to be forgiven for throwing off its colonial masters. So one of the things that probably a lot of people are aware of is this issue of reparations. Um, Haiti had to actually pay reparations to France uh, for almost 100 years, I think, in return for its freedom. Isn't it the slaves that usually get the reparations? Uh, yeah, it, it seems should, a little backwards. It, it should be. It certainly yeah. should be. And the French basically, their navy threatened to blockade Haiti's port and prevent it from trading unless they paid these these reparations. So then, obviously, and please interrupt me because I don't want to just be going no, on and on, but no, then no. Um, as French colonial power receded, um, US colonial power uh, rose. Um, and there was something called the Monroe Doctrine in the early 20th century. The Monroe Doctrine basically asserted that the United States couldn't allow any European colonial powers to have any purchase in its, you know, backyard, i.e. Central America, Latin America, and the Caribbean. And, you know, in some sense, maybe fine, but what that practically meant was it wasn't they wanted to necessarily free these countries from European colonial uh, influence, it was just that they wanted to replace the colonial influence with um, their own. And so Haiti, which many people don't know, is actually occupied by American troops from 1915 to 1934. Um, ah, General Smedley Darlington Butler. Exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. Yes, who I know is uh, the subject of another one of your investigations. <laughs> and was it him who had that appalling quote about fancy that, uh, you know, black speaking French? That was the that was the extent of his knowledge of Haiti when he was administrating it. Yeah, he was a real pill, that guy. Um, problematic figure. And and unfortunately not uncommon in the in the larger sort of landscape of colonial powers and hegemonic ambitions or he ambitions to be the hegemon. And this um, I think you've done a beautiful job sort of painting this picture, if we fast forward a bit, we know that those problems have intergenerational ramifications that continue, unfortunately, today. A lot of people in the Haitian diaspora, they moved away from their homeland uh, to other countries, to, usually to closer countries, sometimes to other things in the Francophone sphere. And a lot of people ended up in Miami, in a place called Little Haiti, where where our story takes place. That's exactly right. So basically, in the 60s, this guy, Francois Papadoc Duvalier, emerged as the president of Haiti. And um, he was initially quite popular because Haiti is predominantly black, but had been ruled by this, um, what was called the mulatto elite, which was, um, you know, French and uh, black mixed families, essentially. And Papa Doc was a doctor who actually worked with the Americans and brought some um, quite important medical innovations to Haiti. 
and was uh, a preacher of this thing called negritude, which is like black gratitude, I guess. Um, and so he was very, very popular with the kind of working class uh, Haitian black population. But he quickly took a very, very nasty turn uh, and became one of the most brutal and wild and perverse dictators of the 20th century. He had a special torture room in his palace with a peephole installed so that he could watch people being tortured to death. I mean, the guy was really appalling. Is this where the Tauntaun comes in? Yeah, so he basically, he didn't trust the army because the army was run by this mulatto elite. So he basically founded this private militia called the Tonton Makuts, who were drawn from the basically the poorest people in Haitian society, but they, were, they weren't paid, but they were given a gun <laughs> and told, you know, you can earn your own salary with this gun. And that, that was... That was the, so mercenaries, essentially, like un, unpaid mercenaries. Unpaid mercenaries, know. exactly. And, yeah. and preying on the population. So it was, it was a horrible time. Um, baby, baby Doc, Papa Doc's son, who was 19 years old, succeeded his father. He was a playboy, actually got Haiti involved in the cocaine trade, with his, his big innovation to fund his lifestyle as a transshipment point between Colombia and Miami. Um, but the Duvaliers were really, um, really brutal. And a lot of people fled to Miami to get away from them. Um, the Duvaliers also, we should know, because I'm sure we'll come on to this, were kind of supported from time to time by the US, whose, whose biggest fear, which hangs over this whole story, was Haiti becoming another Cuba. And the Duvaliers and many people who succeeded them were very successful in playing that fear to get what they wanted. But yeah, Miami became this hotbed of revolutionary Haitians, effectively, who had fled the Duvalier regime. Many of them had fled for things like speaking out loud or criticizing the Duvalier regime. They risked their lives on boats to come to Miami. But it was this self-selecting community of, you know, smart, active, ideologically driven people who were willing to risk their life at sea rather than be silenced. And then they got to Miami and go figure, they started talking and they found this very interesting moment in Miami media history where AM radio was being parceled up and sold by the hour. Um, and so you could buy airtime for 200 bucks an hour. Like public access, essentially, yeah. or cable, whatever, you know, like you, anyone could have their own show if they could pay up. Exactly. But for hundreds of dollars, right? Yeah, a couple of hundred, two hundred dollars an hour, I think. Wow! So they had to do advertising. They had to. They had to basically, again, like they had to figure out how to, <laughs> how to make it work. So they did a lot of advertising for local businesses, that kind of thing. But they also used these airwaves to basically call out the influence of the Duvaliers and their successors, both in Miami and more widely in the U.S., uh, and to call for regime change and to finance regime change. They were actually raising money in Miami using the radio to send to the opposition movement in Haiti. And that's when the killing started. Yeah, because it's like almost like there's this illusion of safety where you're in the United States. You know, these folks have already risked their lives to get to the United States. And now they have this newfound freedom to speak out and maybe a sense of security thinking they can do this. They can affect change. They can send money back home and that they'll be isolated from this brutal regime back home. But the i think maybe the, the the thesis of your show is that maybe not <laughs> yeah exactly right well yeah the concept of that tonton makut right that uh, the security force this weird de facto private thing that they've got going on in haiti it didn't just exist in haiti it also made its way over to the us in some way right or was it i might be getting this mixed up with frap uh, which no. is a whole other organization you're right, Matt. And, and FRAP and the Tontomacoots are basically two sides of the same coin. The Tontomacoots kind of evolved into FRAP, which was another 
extrajudicial paramilitary force, except their job was to buttress the military regime that succeeded the Duvaliers. But yeah, I mean, they were... There were spies. There were spies in Miami, uh, Tonton Makut spies, whose job was to keep an eye on the community, uh, make lists, report back on what was going on, because the Duvaliers knew that the only way they could stay in power was to continue to have the support of the US and US policy. And so a group of vocal, you know, ethnic potential voters in Miami actually could be quite threatening. And so they were really, I mean, they, they were, there are stories of people bumping into the people who tortured them at the grocery store. Um, but there was a, basically a campaign of intimidation saying, you know, don't speak, don't raise money, don't put your head above the parapet, don't get involved in organizing here in Miami, because if you do, uh, you'll pay with your life. And that seems to be what happened. And there were also some some further ramifications for the population of Little Haiti in terms of their status with the United States, right, which would determine what the U.S. would do uh, or how the U.S. would treat them, whether they were economic refugees or whether they qualified as political asylum seekers, right? And that's it sounds like a bit of a legalistic distinction, but uh, from what we understand that's that's a huge deal, and that's something that really came to the forefront when people started connecting the dots on the murders. I mean, Oz, could you tell us a little bit about how, okay, how the fir- the first murder occurs, and people already are living in this very tense, very threatening environment, right? With no one, as you said, wants to stick their head over the para- parapet. This is a journalist who has been speaking truth to power. Uh, do people in the Haitian community immediately begin assuming that this that this was not a random murder? Yeah. So in in December of 1990, um, President Aristide was elected the first ever democratic president of Haiti. And it was a huge moment. There were, you know, basically almost 100 percent of the population voted for him. The whole island was being you know spontaneously redecorated. And particularly the diaspora community in Miami were absolutely thrilled. Um, and the first victim was a radio broadcaster called Jean-Claude Olivier. Um, and he'd been partying on the streets in Miami when the election uh, results were announced. Um, the election was in December. The inauguration was scheduled for February. And in January in Haiti, there was actually a coup attempt against Aristide by the military to prevent him from coming to power. That failed, but there was a lot of static in Miami as well. The old guard were basically trying to figure out how do we hold on to our privilege? How do we hold on to our power? And so um, Jean-Claude Olivier was using his airwaves to basically call these people out to say, like, it's time for change. Um, And he was getting threats into the radio station saying, if you don't shut up, um, you'll be killed. But he kept going. He had a motto, right? Didn't he have like a personal motto that was when when they tell me to shut up, I'm just going to say whatever I want. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but exactly essentially, right. this was his whole deal. That was his whole deal, exactly, exactly. And um, but he was also something of a, a kind of you know party guy. He was involved in music promotion, club figure, right? club like figure. almost like a Studio Fifty Four impresario, street type name character. division star, division star, exactly, and, and a flashy dresser and uh, you know, ladies' man, all those things. Um, the night he died, he was promoting a, a Haitian-American band called Top Vice. And uh, what one of the people who was there that night, who was actually a police officer, told us, 
is that he started talking about politics and basically celebrating um, the election results on stage. And people started booing and he was kind of bundled off stage. Um, and then uh, as he was on his way to his car about four in the morning, um, he got shot assassination style with, with several bullets, some of which lodged in his body and some of which lodged in the car. Immediately afterwards, there was a little bit of doubt about why he was killed, because honestly, 90s Miami, anyone involved in the nightclub scene um, was, you know, potentially also involved in the underworld in some respects. Uh, there was a lot of cocaine trafficking at the time. And so there was almost like a concerted effort, I would say, to smear Jean-Claude and say that, um, you know, his death was because he was wrapped up in some kind of shady business. Um, but then just a few Weeks later, another radio broadcaster was murdered, Fritz Dorr. Very different profile. He was an immigration paralegal, looked after his disabled brother and six children, even more vocal than Jean-Claude on the air. And uh, he was shot dead as he left his job at a driving school in a car park, right in the heart of Little Haiti, which some people saw as a kind of symbolic killing, saying, you know, we can get you even here. Uh, and after that second killing, the doubts about the first killing began to recede. Is Doors killing the one where we get into a strange tactic by assassins that was noticed by people where there were wigs involved and dress, uh, like a female dress or something like that? Yeah, so the the police report, we were able to get it. We did a, a FOIA and we got the kind of some semi-redacted police report. And it's a really wild document. Um, it's, you know, you can kind of feel the probably Anglo police officers receiving this, you know, fire hose of information and just not really knowing how to process it. So, um, oh, yes, and that's a Freedom of Information Act request. Freedom of Information Act along request. at home, yeah. Exactly, and... Um, and sometimes they don't redact it as carefully as they should. So there were some like names and stuff which were redacted in some places and not in others. So that was quite oh, helpful. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I mean there was there was a in the police report there was a, a, a man dressed in a wig uh, and women's clothing was seen fleeing the scene. And we thought that was kind of a weird detail. We did some research and we found out that that was apparently the classic disguise of the Tonton Makuts, the paramilitary, sometimes in Haiti. So that lead never went anywhere, and it may have been. Yeah, there may have been an assumption this was something to do with the Tonton Makuts, and, and that was a kind of way of signaling it. We don't know where that information came from or, 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 or because it turned out that, in fact, the, the shooters were in a car and they fled the, they fled the scene in a car, as we later discovered. Mm. And we also, we also, in silence, we start to experience the process of connecting some of these dots you know one thing that's really interesting was the the first murder with olivier uh they actually both of these murders so far i think we could say uh they were pay for play like these people were were being financially compensated correct there was not just a, a personal grudge right like you didn't promote my band or something no i mean again there were there were rumors at the beginning that there were, this was personal grudges and in fact another weird element of the initial police report is this guy basically um gives a false confession and says that he killed fritz because of some stolen drugs and that information you know leaked its way into the community but but that guy actually recanted his confession. Um, nonetheless, he was prosecuted, went to jail. And the state actually vacated his conviction. So it was like completely made up. And you have to wonder, like, why would this young, you know, teenage kid with six police officers standing over him, 
say that the victim had been killed over drugs. I mean, you have to feel like somebody was feeding him that. It's just, it's, it's just too weird. It's a pretty typical hallmark of these kind of fix-ups, you know, where yeah, they have to have a fall person, uh, and oftentimes those confessions are recanted or details emerge that it was, you know, coerced or in some way done under duress. So, I mean, that's not unusual at all, and I think, while not proof positive, uh, very, very suspicious. Absolutely. Absolutely. But then, yes, it, it turned out um, they were able to, I think we have a relatively high degree of confidence, uh, identify and convict the, the shooter and the driver. But as to who paid them, uh, the police to this day have never uh, uncovered. We developed some leads, um, but uh, but remarkably frustrating, particularly as the killings continued, even with the shooter in jail. Okay, uh, let's take a quick pause here for a word from our sponsor, and then we're going to come back uh, with more from Oz. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we've returned with Oz Wolotion. Let's talk about Louis Thermitus, I think is how you say it. That's right. Uh, th- this is a fascinating character that comes into the story here. He he owns a music shop, right? Or a music store. Yeah. But he's also an events 
promoter or music promoter of some sort? How, how I, I really want to talk about the export of culture, right? Export of music and, and everything that's happening there, as well as the export of drugs as Haiti is playing this very crucial part as a midway point, right? To get cocaine into the U S like, how does that all come together? And what part does Louie play? Well, for the sake of legal, should we never... call him something else? Oz? Uh, no, I think we, we use his name in, in, in the podcast, so it's fine. But we're very clear that he was never convicted of any uh, crime in relation to these murders uh, or in relation to drug trafficking. Um, we didn't find any evidence, hard evidence, uh, that uh, he was responsible. Um, but there were certainly all of these leads that suggested um, he knew... Uh, more and so we actually um we, we we tracked him down um which you can hear in the show but but um but yes and the police tried to run a, a wiretap on him but it, it according to a dea agent the wiretap was botched so he was just kind of looming figure in the background um he was accused by the community of being a tonton macoute uh, which he denied um and he was described by a police officer who we interviewed as a middleman and a distributor and his relation, his his business was described as quote an extension of the government of Haiti. So that was kind of really fascinating. Um, but yes, I mean he brought Haitian music, Haitian bands to Miami, and of course the power of music um, to bring people together and to have influence in a small community is 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 very strong. And so he's an influential figure. He had money. Um, again, there are allegations that he was involved in the drug trade, which we we, we didn't corroborate. But certainly he was a person of interest to the DEA. Um, and so stories started to spread uh, that he was in some way uh, involved in the killings. And in fact, um, Matt, to your excellent question, the tinderbox, at least for the first two killings, seems to have been one of his concerts. So this is kind of the elephant in the room for a lot of people who maybe aren't in the Haitian community but live near Little Haiti. They're thinking like you said, about nightclub lifestyle. They're thinking about drugs, and they may not be fully aware of um, of the way Haiti has become a functioning transit point for the cocaine trade in particular. But it seems that some U.S. forces were in, very intimately aware of this. And Oz, we have to ask you, how does the CIA show up in this story? Well, um, it's a complicated I totally, one. By the way, I totally put my finger on the scale of that question, where I'm like, you know, drugs. Anyway, CIA, what's up? Uh, so, obviously, you know, we all know about the CIA's uh, history in the 80s involving drugs and weapons and money and uh, fueling... Nicaragua. Uh, <coughs> Nicaragua, exactly. <laughs> fueling uh, anti-communist militias and death squads um and so interestingly um the duvalier regime fell in 1986 baby doc duvalier was never really interested in governing only interested in you know french champagne and fancy clothes and and money um and so there was actually a military coup against him in 1986 um but the military leaders who succeeded him, many of whom had been trained at the Army School of the Americas in uh, in Georgia, which obviously is a, a well-known CIA um, recruiting spot. And the CIA Listen to our very... episode on that. 
Uh, okay, actually, sorry, I, 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 I will. <laughs> I actually, that was good. I, I, that's to everybody else. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I'm sorry. I should have done that already. That was crazy. But, um, but it's, a, it's a, I, I'm really looking forward to it because you obviously know much more about it than I do. But, um, but so they were these military types who took over were, were some of them were later revealed to be on the CIA payroll. Suddenly, lot, they had a lot of contact over the year with U.S. intelligence. And the CIA put together a report in 1988 saying basically, you know, if Haiti doesn't have strong rule, like a desperate government could turn to the USSR uh, instead. And so this is really late 80s. The CIA is still worried that Haiti might go Cuba's way, uh, you know, two years before the end of the Cold War and become a kind of Russian satellite island. And so that informed every part of the CIA's policy in Haiti, um, which included, uh, you know, having these military leaders on the payroll. It also included setting up this um, counter-narcotics intelligence force uh, called the SIN, or the acronym was SIN, which was probably uh, a little bit unfortunate. Bit on the <laughs> and um, these SIN leaders became basically, because they had, you know, untrammeled power, uh, in Haiti, they became the favoured liaison of the Colombian cartels and drug trafficking through Haiti just exploded at this time. And so you have this ironic situation where the CIA is uh, sort of chosen uh, partners in terms of governance and intelligence were also operating on behalf of the Colombian cartel. And there's one very telling story that actually isn't in the podcast, but it's kind of fascinating, which is there was a DEA bust in 1991 of a relatively high-ranking um, SIN person. Um, and uh, the DEA, DEA guy basically nailed down how, how this guy was involved in Colombian cocaine trafficking. Um, and it, for the DEA, it was like a big moment. They thought they were going to finally unwind this network. But then the DEA agent got a death threat called into his uh, home by somebody who identified himself as the superior of this SIN agent, i.e. like one of the leaders of the military junta. And rather than any response from the US, the guy was just immediately evacuated and the investigation was over. So it does beg these questions as to, um, <laughs> as to I would say, competing priorities. Um, the DA was sort of basically trying to do gumshoe law enforcement, uh, seemingly, but the people they were investigating evidently had protection from a much more senior agency, I think the CIA. And that's what's, that's, that's sticky too, because this is, um, I'm, I'm really glad you're bringing up this story about these events of the 90s, because there's, there's a continual thing, uh, a, a continual implication and mystery about people being somehow protected and and matt i i know that um that probably spoke to to all of us right especially it comes to a head in in a very interesting interview in episode five right there's uh in particular i'm thinking about that it, 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 how does this protection work does it seem that there truly are these shadowy forces that are saying this person is untouchable? Well, our big question was, you know, these four murders that happened in Miami, you know, where the shooter and the driver in the first two murders went to jail, but nobody else ever, not the shooters in the second cases, certainly not the intellectual authors. Uh, and who was behind the intellectual authors? I mean, that, that's the question that always fascinated me in this story is, were people being protected for some reason? Is that why we didn't see justice? And, um, you know, as it goes reporting these stories, you can raise the question, you can do your best. We, you know, we, we couldn't nail down an answer to that question. But 
um, it did seem like uh, seemingly every <laughs> nefarious person who had decision-making authority in Haiti at the time was seemingly in one way or another a CIA asset. And so there's also this very um, uh, shadowy character whose um, code name was literally The Shadow, who's this Canadian <laughs> <laughs> Canadian mercenary pilot who was also involved in the Biafra War uh and he was kind of um, the go-between between between the military hunter and the CIA, or at least that's how he branded himself. And so we had questions about him and what he knew. And obviously, you know, this silencing of the um, radio broadcasters in Miami, we believe that the intention was to make sure, and we were told by police officers that they ultimately came to believe the intention was to make sure these guys didn't influence US policy. So it was crazy to think that these like very local murders on the streets of this ethnic neighborhood in Miami could have tentacles that, that raise exactly the question you just raised, Ben. But, but, but we, you know, we, we got some interesting stuff in the podcast. I so definitely listen, but I, I'm, I'm, we weren't able to fully <laughs> nail them down. Unfortunately, that cocaine money, man, that's a lot of money. I feel like the inf- you could influence a lot of people to do a lot of things with that money. Well, I think there's an interesting meta quality to this podcast as well. I mean, the, the name of it is obviously The Radio Murders. We're talking about people speaking out through broadcast. And podcasts now have become this kind of extension of traditional broadcast radio. And there is power in that ability to communicate. I mean, I remember one of the first true crime shows I worked on involved a, a serial killer who's still incarcerated. And it didn't occur to me till close to the episodes coming out that – I could be targeted by this person who exists, you know, still and maybe has followers who could dox me or figure out how to send people after me and my family. And this realization just kind of hit me. And of course, nothing ever came of it. But this is a situation where things are definitely coming of it in terms of people speaking out against dangerous people who are still out there in the world in America, in a place where you're presumed to be safe to be able to have that freedom of speech. But not necessarily the case when when you're dealing with that amount of money, that kind of interest from these powerful and dangerous people. How, how did that occur to you at all? Or when you're doing this kind of reporting, just the position that you're playing in that kind of game of telephone, you know, in, in this ability to kind of spread information and the potential for maybe even you to be targeted in some way? Yeah, I mean, of course, it crosses your mind. I think obviously, as a you know, as a white dude, <laughs> several hundred miles away uh, from from Miami, you know, your your fears are, are less than they might otherwise be. But it's a really good point you make about podcasting. I mean, in some ways, these four guys, you know, they were just buying the airtime by the hour, playing their music, talking about what was on their mind. Sometimes it was, you know, local politics, sometimes international politics, sometimes just, you know, fun banter. And in a sense, like, these guys were the early podcasters and the radio technology, you know, allowed them, allowed them to kind of have that opportunity. But by the same token, that meant that people didn't want to see them as like capital J, J journalists. I mean, some, like some of the debates we have today, frankly, like who's a journalist and who isn't. But in the case of these guys, like their murders were not treated as the murders of journalists. People kind of diminished what they did as just kind of, you know, commentary. Um, and so the way I came across the story was that my co-host, Anna Arana, actually wrote a report for the Committee to Protect Journalists in the early 90s about the murders of ethnic journalists on U.S. soil. So Haitian community, the Vietnamese community, um, and I think the Taiwanese community. And I read her report and her big thing was, you know, if somebody is murdered to silence them, 
that is a federal civil rights jurisdiction. And if these people were using the radio to inform their community, they were journalists. And any argument to the contrary is, you know, has some kind of either elitism or snobism or, or, or racism involved. Because what is, I mean, unless you want to do a totally Talmudic interpretation of journalism, what, what is it other than, you know, what we're doing now? Storytelling. Yeah. And just, you're right. Exactly. No, I think that's a really good point. Um, yeah. Thank you. Hey, I want to jump back just a little bit more to talk about the relationship the United States had with Haiti and why that was so important and why policy within the U.S. towards Haiti was so important. And it comes in the story that I believe it's Bill O'Neill who tells a story in the podcast. Um, but there's this weird thing that happens where Aristide is elected, comes into power. We mentioned this. This was a big deal, right? Everybody was celebrating. There's a coup attempt early on before he's even inaugurated. Then he's only in power for seven, eight months, something like that. So the U.S. decides, well, okay, we need to take action. I believe this is what the way it, the order goes in. The U.S. takes action by deploying a naval ship called the USS Harlan County to Haiti, what happens as it's approaching the country? So, yeah, so Aristide is overthrown a coup in 1991, and the military regime who replace him go about a campaign of slaughter, basically, of his supporters. And so what that means is you have more and more and more refugees fleeing to the U.S. on boats, and that's always uh, politically unacceptable, um, as we as we know today. And so the U.S. at a certain point, even though um, they have appreciated the stability brought by their partners in the military, basically said this refugee crisis has to end. You military figures have to make an agreement with Aristide that he comes back and there's a peaceful transition of power. You guys get amnesty, but, you know, we got to stop the refugee crisis. So the military guys say, yes, yes, yes. And the U.S. send a ship to prepare for the arrival of Aristide with some Marines and basically making sure that he's not killed when he gets off his boat, which is coming in a week later. As they pull into the dock, this paramilitary force called FRAP uh, basically take over the dock. They've been using the radio in Haiti to summon their supporters. Um, and they basically make this wild scene on the dock and they're chanting. This was like a week after Black Hawk Down in Somalia as well. If you land the dock, if you land the ship, this will be another Mogadishu. This U.S. diplomat arrives on the dock to try and um, defuse the situation. They, they hold him at gunpoint, they hold him hostage. And the ship, uh, Bill O'Neill, as you mentioned, um, is watching this. He's a U.N. human rights observer from his window. And he just sees the USS Navy ship just turn around and disappear back over the horizon to dock where it came from, which ironically enough is Guantanamo Bay. Um, and, uh, and so that's it. No, no, no return of Aristide. And what's quite remarkable is that Frapp, the leader of Frapp was also a CIA asset. And he claimed the CIA knew in advance of his plans at the dock and that he'd assured them that no American life would be hurt, but they let it go ahead. Yeah, constant. Yeah. But it's so nuts to me that action was only taken, at least the way I understand it, action was taken to send that ship because of optics, right? I mean, that ultimately it feels that way, right? Because the policy is to maintain the power that's there in the military. Exactly. And Aristide, while he was in exile, was basically a lot of pressure was put on him in return for being sent back to accept various economic reforms, to give amnesty to his political opponents. So 
he eventually did go back, but he, you know, many people say that he was a different person. And so, yes, the optics of having him in power could stem the refugee crisis, but the policies that he wants to enact the first time round, he had to basically eschew as a condition of being allowed to go back. And those policies were policies of the left, redistribution, um, reform, military reform, disbanding the military, things which were extremely unpopular to the powers that be, and frankly, they're some of their allies in the US. I think that's one of the key points to tease out here, although it may seem, it, it may already seem wild to some of us listening today to start with a brief history of Haiti and then go to a series of, as you said, four murders. And then all of a sudden, this rabbit hole takes us to talking about the dirty, dirty business of the intelligence game, right? The way that this web connects is endlessly fascinating to me. I think one of the questions people will ask at this point is, does it seem that, does it seem that the U.S. practices toward Haiti are meant to keep the country down or are they meant to push it toward a certain ideological vision? Like, that, you know, you said they don't want another Cuba, right? Um, what, what does the CIA want in this situation? And is it constant or does it, or <laughs> that's an accidental <laughs> pun. Uh, is it consistent, I should say? Does it change over time? I think that's a great question. And... Um... I don't think there's an evil genius uh, saying, you know, how do we make Haiti's future as difficult and terrible as possible? I think it's that's a downstream outcome of other types of decisions. That said, a police officer in Miami uh, did tell us um, that, uh, you know, having chaos in Haiti basically allowed the U.S. to continue to... Um, exert maximal influence because um, an unstable country with a small uh, elite, a military elite and business elite, which to all the world looks like it's, you know, quote unquote, whole country. Um, there's not a civil society resistance to the imposition of whatever the powerful neighbor's whims are because it's being relied on for humanitarian aid and for, you know, weapons and all those kinds of things. So, you know, the last project I worked on was about Mexico and the and the murders of women on the on the El Paso Juarez border, which you very kindly had me on the show to discuss. And you know, it's not great being a much poorer country in the backyard of a much bigger and richer one. And one of the guests we spoke to on the podcast, you know, who's Haitian, compared it to the situation in Ukraine, which I thought was extremely provocative. Um, but basically, saying what Russia would not allow Ukraine um, to come into the Western sphere of influence. And she was saying it's the same for, for Haiti. So, I mean, that's a hot take, but, um, but provocative. And we're going to pause for a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back with Oz Wolotion and Silence, the Radio Murders. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. Let's jump right back into our conversation with Oz. So I want to get back to Constant, that guy that we said was the head of FRAP, who was also CIA, I guess. Um, and, and it's a it's a question about power projection. It's interesting to me the tactics this individual would use to incite fear in people who opposed him, as well as incite, I don't know, some kind of fervor in people who were following him. Um, could you talk a little bit about some of the ritualistic stuff he would do to just project an image of power? Yeah, so Toto Constant was kind of like a rich kid. Um, but his father had been the army chief of staff to Papa Doc Duvalier. And apparently young Toto would hear his father and Papa Doc plotting late into the night about how to control Haiti, how to exert power, policy. And so... Um, in this chaos after 1991 and the uh, coup against Aristide, he emerges as this sort of figure who is able to win the trust of uh, US intelligence because he speaks English uh, perfectly. He's been Western educated. Um, his father dealt with, you know, people from the agency in the past. And um, so he has this one side of his personality, which is this like very suave, sophisticated, smooth operator who knows how to get what he needs from U.S. intelligence. Um, but he also understands the very powerful um, iconography of um, power and violence, which he learns from Papadoc Duvalier. Papadoc Duvalier would kind of voodoo religion is like very much you know the, the common religion of the people in in Haiti. 
But there are certain um, voodoo archetypes who have different valences. And Papadoc lent very heavily into the archetype of Baron Samedi, or the Lord of Death, um, and dressed like the Lord of Death. And basically, Constant, uh, in the early 90s, um, in order to kind of, was basically very consciously drawing on this uh, Lord of Death Papadoc iconography. He apparently would emerge from this pile of burning skulls, which were rumored to be the skulls of his victims. Um, and so... Real showman. A real yeah. showman. And what he wanted to do was to... You know, he was the, the perfectly educated gentleman with the with the intelligence agencies, but he was the, you know, the Papadoc's successor with the you know, Haitian people. And um, the fact that he was so versatile, I think, speaks to one of the bigger themes of this show, which is kind of like information wars and, you know, the power of controlling the message or the power of controlling the image. Um, and so then there's a whole nother layer of complexity, which is saying that you're on the payroll of the CIA can get you power even if you're not. So like there's, you know, it's it's it just goes, you know, layer and layer and layer into into basically how you project authority in a place where there's no no real media and it's very hard to separate fact from fiction. But if somebody in Miami is countering what you are projecting there in Haiti, it could be a real problem, I imagine. Like and, and just that that concept of undermining a message all the way over in a different country is so fascinating to me, and I just feel like when you are when you are all, all out projecting an image that may not be true, it is very very dangerous to have a journalist saying the true things, no matter what they are. And state powers know this. I mean, I'll I'll say the quiet part out loud. Check out Voice of America. You know what I mean? Ask why they do what they do, where they do it. Uh, it's it's true. There is the there is this thread of what's sometimes called hearts and minds in a dismissive way, but um, inf information, media, they're another theater of conflict, right? Another sphere in which these battles can occur. And I, I think one of, the, one of the things that a lot of us hearing the broad strokes of this story today need to understand is that this was not that long ago. The 1990s were... Not super long ago, people uh, active in this story are still around. And I've got to ask, Oz, did you find yourself just as as a journalist, as a creator and storyteller, um, you know, you you really go hard in the paint with this stuff. Did you ever feel that you were in an uncomfortable situation where you were talking to some of these people? Yeah, a couple of times. Certainly when we went to... Uh go and doorstep Mr. Mr. Thermitus. Um, that was, that was pretty uncomfortable, but we had another interview, which, and we were kind of expecting that to be a bit scary and uncomfortable. So we prepared for it. So that was one thing, but we had another interview, um, with a source in Miami, um, who basically went crazy and started shouting like the people you're reporting on were filth. They were scum. They were drug dealers. And, uh, what are you doing wasting your time? And it was kind of quite shit, like uh, made, made, shook us up a little bit. I mean, like, well, what, like, but what we realized was like the contest over the interpretation of this story is still relevant. Uh, and so he was somebody who was very much, you know, I would say on the other side of this divide. And um, so the kind of litigation as to why these people were murdered and, and, and who killed them kind of remains relevant. So that was, that was pretty fascinating. And then of course, while we were in 
um, Miami on one of our reporting trips, I think the president of Haiti, Jovenel Moise, was assassinated. Um, and that made us think as well, okay, I mean, this has all of the same hallmarks in terms of um, drugs, in terms of US intelligence, in terms of like control of the region. And so um, we actually get to the assassination towards the end of our show. And, um, and, and hopefully, uh, you know, some of the drivers and um, context required to really understand that killing also come through in our reporting. When I hear stories like this and this kind of reporting and, and seeing the red threads that, that run throughout it and the connections to the United States and the kind of, you know, covert parts of the United States government, I think the U.S. likes to project itself as, as having this moral high ground, as, as like being this moral authority in the world. And the more you hear about stories like this, the more you realize it's all kind of optics and there is no moral high ground. And, and whatever other, you know, totalitarian regime, you know, ha- at least they're outward about it. <laughs> it just makes me really, ugh, it just kind of suck some of the hope that you have out of thinking that maybe we live in a country that does, you know, want something better or have, I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm just rambling here. No, but, but I mean, but, yeah, I hear you. But on the other hand, like this was a place where people wanted to come and as horrific as their treatment was when they arrived, they did settle here. Um, you know, they could speak freely for a bit until they were killed. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's, um, you know, there's, of course, it's there's a lot to criticize, but there are. I mean, there's a reason why this continues to be the country where so many refugees from whether it's Afghanistan or Haiti or Ukraine want to come. And so that you know, I think it's it's also good not to be too nihilistic because there's you know the good the good parts are worth celebrating and preserving. And so like I um you know yes, I think it's the the behavior particularly like outside of the borders is pretty appalling. Um, and Guantanamo, funny enough, when when Haitian refugees in the 90s were fleeing, if they were intercepted at sea, they were actually sent to Guantanamo and held there while their like case was being processed. So the the um, the use of Guantanamo as a detention center um, post 9-11 was also kind of, I would say, tried out during this period of Haitian history, which is quite, um, quite intense to think about. So I, I want to celebrate the good parts of, you know, refugees coming to the United States because they are and we should. I think I was a little naive going into this when thinking about the dangers that younger people, uh, the the children of refugee families who make it here, the potential influence uh, because of their, usually their parents' situations of being overworked, like having to make ends meet, being alone a lot of the time, um, the potential influence of darker forces like gangs and groups that could influence them and maybe pick them up as a second family or something. You talk about that in the show. Did you see any of that in speaking to people? Yeah. I mean, I think the gang recruitment issue was huge in the early nineties. And of course, you know, the fact that the people who pulled the trigger to anyone's real mind are not the people who need to be, uh, you know, I mean, of course, they need to be brought to justice in the sense they committed a murder, but it wasn't their idea. So it's like different from a normal murder. And the fact that you had this population of kids of refugees living in Miami, Haitian refugees, bullied at school. There's a lot of stigma that Haitians carried AIDS at the time, um, you know, and their parents were working, you know, double shifts to send money back home. There couldn't have been a more fertile population uh, to recruit to do dirty work. And so... What we found was a lot of these um, like Haitian military figures and Tontomakuts who ended up in Miami, they didn't do their own dirty work. Instead, they recruited the kids 
of your fellow refugees. And so that was another thing the radio broadcasts were calling out on air. They were saying, like, these people are corrupting our kids. Like, we have to stop this. Like, not only are they, you know, trafficking cocaine, they're using our kids to do it. And they're using the proceeds to support the regime in Haiti. It's like the most disturbing and horrific vicious circle and uh, and so so yeah, on, on 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 all parts of that circle, um, there was this kind of contest because the, the the nexus of the drugs and the power and the money and the influence both in Miami and Haiti was was so strong and also so hard to understand for people outside the community. I think that's you know, again, I mean the police. I think there were many problems with the investigation, but to be fair to them, it also wasn't necessarily the easiest one. And this this gets us to um, even even further toward the present day. We have seen that practice occur in other diaspora communities. You know, um, there is a very disturbing and very valid argument that the U.S. Um, the U.S. is one of the creators of MS-13, you know, Mara Salvatruttas and so on. And we can see something similar here. I'm, I'm also, you know, to, to be fully transparent with everybody on the show today, Folks, we don't know how how the how the show ends yet, right? <laughs> no, we are no. again; it's still in publication. So, episode seven is uh, going to be available for everyone uh, in uh, I think in the next week On or Thursday so. Thursday next but, week. But if you're a yeah. subscriber to iHeart True Crime Plus, you can get it early. So, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we have eight, eight episodes total. Eight episodes total. So. What do you hope people can take away from this from this story? And you know, like as as we said, some of the some of the people who are clearly involved in the murders have not been held to account. So, what can the average listener walk away from the show with? Well, I think it's what's worth fighting for is always an important question, and um, you know, First Amendment rights, being able to speak freely an attack on anyone uh, that uh, speaks freely in this country that goes unpunished is an attack on that right, as far as we're concerned, me and, me and my partner, Anna. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of extreme political divide, to say the least, in this country right now. But there are some things that should be bipartisan. And no matter how much you don't like what somebody else is saying, you shouldn't wish physical harm on them for saying it. Um, and so that's one thing. Um, I also think what's really important is getting justice. So you might say, oh, 30 years later, does it really matter? Well, the smears about these people are still alive. We, we, they got smeared in our interview process. Oh, they were drug dealers, they were scum. But all of our reporting suggested the opposite. So categorically answering who is responsible for this is very important. And then thirdly, I mean, I don't know what you do with the information, but I think just the awareness that these bigger forces um, of you know, geopolitical power can be at play in the most seemingly surprising places, I just find personally very fascinating. That's what drew me into the story. There's this brilliant um, Joan Didion quote. Uh, she wrote this book, Miami, about the basically the the CIA's attempts to, successful attempts to, you know, ferment the anti-Castro invasionary forces in Miami. And uh, she has this line, decisions taken in Washington 
from time to time leave a certain residue on the board. And that phrase, a certain residue on the board, is very, I mean, it's, that unfortunately is what the victims of these crimes were as far as Langley is concerned. You know what left some residue on my board? Your theme song. Can you tell us a little about the theme song? It's so good. Oh, I'm so happy you like it. It's actually uh, a friend of mine um, who called Oliver Rodigan, a.k.a. Cadenza. His um, his father basically was one of the pioneers of bringing dance hall and reggae music to the UK, David Rodigan. And Oliver is the most brilliant uh, composer written for Space Jam and Beyonce as well as our podcast, which is kind of insane. Wow. <laughs> um, That's why it's so good. And, uh, it's so good. And I heard Beyonce bragging about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. He asked, he asked her not to talk about it, but sometimes... <laughs> <laughs> How can you not? No, no, I'm with you, Matt. It has a very visceral quality that evokes the themes of the show, and that's not easy to do in an uh, instrumental piece of music. So, it's so uh, Very much, yeah, kudos to that. And the whole score, and just the whole production, it's... Uh, really uh, something to be incredibly proud of well thank you do check out the show folks um you know we we talk about these things when they are important to us and when we feel like there is a story that needs to be told and this is very much the case with the radio murders so Oz, uh, we've got we've to let the people know, as we mentioned at the top, you have many other projects that you have worked on, some of which we've discussed at length here on Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. For the curious, uh, where can they learn more about your work? Where can they hear this show? Where can they find your other projects? So this show is called Silence the Radio Murders, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts, especially iHeart uh, Podcast app and uh, iHeart True Crime Plus. Um, love our partners at iHeart. And, uh, and then as for our other work, um, I've actually recently launched a production company with my partner, Mangesh, who you all know uh, very well. Mango? Love, love dearly. <laughs> big, big fan. And, uh, and the production company is called Kaleidoscope. You can find all of our shows on www.k-scope.com. And I think our uh, Twitter is Kaleidoscope Podcasts. Um, so this is honestly a little darker in tone than much of what we do at Kaleidoscope. Our next show is about this leftist Greek bank robber who robs the rich uh, to uh, to give money to the poor in Greece. As it happens, he is also uh, on the on some Interpol list and like very high up on the agenda of U.S. intelligence because of the fears about leftist contagion in Europe. So we can never fully resist. Oh no! But uh, <laughs> but uh, but that one's and we have one about the last Soviet cosmonaut who got trapped in space when the Soviet Union fell. Ooh. And um, we always uh, yeah we're 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 so excited to have a chance to talk about our shows on other wonderful shows like this one. So thank you. I also uh, highly recommend. Wild chocolate, and uh, I, in full transparency, I do, uh, I do make a small cameo on Mangesh's um, project Skyline Drive, which is ostensibly about astrology, but I don't want to spoil any more than that. I think I'm on there somewhere too. I did a thing for him. You both uh, did right uh, uh, like warnings yeah. at the top, right? I think that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So thank you to our thank you to our pal Mangesh as well. And Oz, thank you again so much for your time. Uh we are right there with you folks. We can't wait to see uh or hear, I should say, the conclusion of again this incredibly distressing, profoundly important tale.
In the meantime, let us know what you thought about this interview, your thoughts on this and other stories we cover on the show. You can find us on various social media platforms of note. We are Conspiracy Stuff on Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Conspiracy Stuff Show on Instagram and TikTok. If you want to give us a call, dial 1-833-STDWYTK. It's a voicemail system. Please give us a cool moniker, just not your government name. Just keep that anonymity there. And uh, you can, you've got three minutes. Say whatever you want. If you want to say more than that, why not instead send us a good old-fashioned email? We are conspiracy at iheartradio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.